Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you here this first day of the week, as usual. We're doing 2 Samuel, starting up 2 Samuel. And I just wanted to give you a heads up because after this, we're going to the book of Psalms. It's not really a book, it's a collection of Psalms. And there are 150 of them. That's 2,700 verses. And no matter how you divide them up, if you wanted to read the entire Psalms, it comes to about 300 and something verses a day in order to do all 150 of them in a week. <laughs> so on page 48 of your member manual, there's like a nice topical exposition of the Psalms, like by topics. So I would encourage you to focus on the topics instead of trying to read the entire book of Psalms, especially if you request for time. So that's just my brief heads up for you. If you want to go ahead and read them, I'm going to try to read them. Whole book of Psalms, but uh, we'll see what, how that goes. That's Second Samuel. So First Samuel. Now, as you know, First and Second Samuel are really one book. It's just that uh, the Vulgate and the Septuagint divided them into two different books because the scroll apparently was too big, <laughs> so they kind of cut them in half and made two two different ones. So that's why we have a First and a Second Samuel. Originally, they were one book. And in this, this first part of the book, we read how the nation of Israel transitioned from a loosely uh, federated group of tribes into one powerful nation under a king. First, King Saul tried to do that, and then King David. And Samuel, the main character we see here, he was the last judge, but the first major prophet in assistance to the king to transition that fledgling nation into a military and economic force to be reckoned with, particularly much later during the reign of Solomon. So Samuel is like a central character here, and I believe that we're going to do things a little bit different today. We're going to look at Christ and Samuel first, uh, because that's who Samuel is a shadow of. He's a shadow of Christ. Uh, if we take a look at Samuel, Samuel is the central character in this uh, book, in this historical book, due to his integrity. He is the closest shadow of our Lord Jesus so far in our reading due to the role that he played in the formation of this divinic kingdom. And the fact that Samuel was the only prophet slash priest slash king at the time, aside from the mysterious Melchizedek that we had seen in Genesis. Uh, being that from his youth, Samuel was devoted to serving the Lord as a faithful priest. We see that in 1 Samuel 2, 35, where God is saying, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And that is the central theme, at least in 1 Samuel. 
because we're going to see two characters. Apart from Samuel, there's also two other characters that were introduced to, and that is Saul and that is David. And in one of them, we're going to see a man devoted in heart and mind to doing what the Lord wants and another man who's just interested in doing what he wants. And so that becomes the major contrast that we see in Samuel. But this is a central passage here because it tells us what the Lord is looking for. He wants to raise up a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. And I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Samuel became the embodiment of what the Lord was looking for among his people. Someone who would do what God wanted to do, not what they wanted to do. We had seen in the past, the judges kind of did what they want. The only one who really, I guess, tried to do what God wanted was Moses and then maybe Joshua. After that, we had a long gap of people that lacked integrity <laughs> until we come to Samuel, uh, which is one who wants to do the will of God. Samuel was the one to imitate and so God uses Samuel to transition Israel into that period in history where he was going to build the house of David from where the Messiah comes. So this is the foundation that we need to build on for our own house to be a godly house. Devotion of heart and mind. We want to be raising up people with a heart and a mind devoted to God, faithful people, doing God's bidding as opposed to doing our own. That's, of course, easier said than done. <laughs> we are a very uh, willful people, willful and intent on doing our own thing, willful and intent on sinning. And we've read that so far in our readings in the Bible, that that's who God encounters on and on and on. Yet God demonstrates his patience, his love, and still wanting to desire to deal with us as a people, as Kevin said in his lesson. That shows God's integrity and God's love, something that we're very thankful for. So this is the foundational principle here in Samuel. Do we want to build a house, a godly house? Well, this is what is required. Now, I do want to clarify that for us on the other side of the cross now, 2,000 years after the cross of Christ, Raising a faithful household among our family members also includes making disciples, making faithful disciples that may not be blood related to us because the Great Commission goes beyond bloodlines. Back in Israel, the emphasis was on raising families that would be devoted to God because it was very important for there to be a continuity of heritage among the people. Uh, that's why they have so many genealogies that we read so even until the New Testament when Christ is introduced. But now that we have the Great Commission, now that same charge to multiply is now to multiply spiritually. So building a godly house includes us making faithful disciples, finding people who want to obey the Lord and teaching them how to be devoted to God in heart and mind. The emphasis on the Great Commission is this, and it is the foundation of God's plan for his church, the godly house we're building right now on the other side of the cross. So here we see Jesus kind of repeating that or emphasizing that he, he was asked, hey, your brother and your mother is outside waiting for you. And this is how Jesus replied to that. He said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So our families are not just those born to us physically, but those who are born again in Christ. And that's who we are. We are the family of Christ. So as we strive to build a godly house to serve the name of the Lord, we're going to look at this contrast that God has set for us in the book of 1 Samuel between two men that God chose, not man chose. God chose these men. He was hoping that they would build a godly house. And one of them failed him. One of them failed him. The other one succeeded. So I believe he has this written in the record of the Bible kind of to show us this contrast, to emphasize what it's going to take to build that godly house. So we're going to examine this contrast in heart and mind devotion. Let's first look at Saul. Let's examine King Saul. Saul made three crucial mistakes, and he made them quite early in his kingdom. And those cost him the blessing to become a godly house, to become the person who would establish a godly house. And all of his mistakes can be attributed to one single thing, being heartlet. Saul was heartlet. And you might say, well, who's not? I mean, all of us have a heart, and it's very, very difficult, as you know, to not let your heart lead, but instead let your convictions lead. But that's how God's people distinguish themselves from the world, precisely by that. And I believe God set this contrast so that we could learn this principle, what it takes to build a godly house. Saul let his emotions take over constantly. And his decisions, instead of being based on convictions and on his faith and on obedience, his convictions or his decisions always were the result of his emotions. He might have really wanted to please God. He might have had that desire to really please the Lord. But the kind of character and the integrity he had was shown for what he did, not what he wanted to do. And that's what we have here. He was impatient. Saul didn't want to wait. He had trouble waiting. People who are heart led have trouble being patient, have trouble waiting. They want to take matters into their own hands. And we've seen this theme play throughout the judges also. We saw that this is a problem in human beings. We generally have this problem. Saul felt justified to do something that he wasn't supposed to do because he was unwilling to be patient. You see, when we're not patient and we take matters into our own hands, whatever we end up doing, we end up justifying. Well, well yeah, I have to find an excuse for what I did. Otherwise, I'm going to look bad. <laughs> so we end up justifying things. Uh, he allows his heart to bully him. And because of this, let's look at some of the mistakes that he made. Uh, if you open your Bibles, please, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to look through some of these scriptures that I have here on the top. You can follow along with me. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 12 through 14, we see the first mistake that he made. Saul answers uh, Samuel, he says, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought 
the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled. There's that, that, that heart led right there. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel because Samuel was a priest and only priests are allowed to offer a burnt offering. But Saul was impatient. He wanted to do it right now. He thought, oh, the Philistines are coming. I have to do something to please God. When pleasing God would have been waiting for Samuel to do what he had to do. Not taking it upon to do it himself. But in a desperate attempt to satisfy his impatience, he offers the sacrifice. And Samuel says in verse 13, you've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And notice what he says afterward. He repeats that that we had read before. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. See, God is interested in us being devoted to him in heart and in mind, devoting, devoted to what he wants to do, which involves knowing the will of God, knowing the word of God, knowing it deeply, knowing it intimately, so that then you can obey it. Those are the two things that God is seeking to do. So Saul justified himself, of course, here. Uh, sometimes he followed commands, but oftentimes he changed them at his own convenience. And so this led him to make his third mistake. I'm skipping over the second one for now because his first and his third mistake were the most fatal. And so in his third mistake, he was asked to completely destroy the Amalekites. We read that in 1 Samuel 15, 18 through 24. So if we start reading in verse 18, so uh, Samuel told him, I sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Remember, these were the people that were left over after Joshua because Israel at that time was supposed to have wiped them out, but they didn't. So they were still around causing trouble. And so now uh, Samuel sent Saul on a mission to do that. And he asked him, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? He was also supposed to destroy all the plunder and give it as a devotion to the Lord, as the Israelites had done for Jericho. But Saul kept some of the plunder also for himself. Now in verse 20, what does he say? But I did obey the Lord. He said, I did do it. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed them and brought back Agag the king. So he right there is contradicting himself because... If he would have completely destroyed them, then he wouldn't have brought back the king alive. And so Samuel, at the end here in verse 22, says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Because Saul's excuse was, look, I got all this sheep so that I could sacrifice them to God. Isn't that what God wants? I didn't destroy them because I wanted to offer them to the Lord. And Samuel's like, listen. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying him? To obey, and here's one of the foundational principles we find in 1 Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. 
We learn here that although we might be able to offer God and do a lot of things for God and uh, go out of our way for God and try to kind of build up some kind of uh, to-do list on behalf of God, God is more interested in you obeying his commands than in all that because that could end up causing you trouble, causing you to boast in yourself and to think that you've done something for God where you can't really do anything for God. The only thing you can do is get to know his word and obey. That's what he likes. That's what he wants. He wants a person, a man, who would go after him, who would go after his heart and do his will, not our will. And that is the struggle God has with his people constantly, showing us a lot of patience and mercy so that we can learn to do that. Eventually, Saul does relent and says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command. But you saw how, how hard he fought. It was like pulling teeth with this guy until he finally confessed, yeah, you know what? I, I, didn't, I didn't follow the command. But he defended himself, though, at first. And that's what happens when you're heart-led. When you're heart-led, you want to justify yourself. You want to make sure your excuses are correct. And you don't really end up confessing your sin. And there's very little room then for God to work with you. And for God even to be able to build a house, a godly house, if you're that kind of a person. That also leads Saul to make a lot of rash vows, a lot of rash decisions, basically heart-led decisions, heart-led vows, heart-led promises that sometimes don't make any sense. Instead of being spirit-led and instead of going with the program God wanted him to do, he does some things that we're like, why did he do that? And one of them led him to do his second mistake. In 1 Samuel 14, 24, uh, the Israelites were distressed that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, curse be anyone who eats food before evening comes. And so this is the time where Saul kind of put this curse that no one could eat food. And his soldiers were tired. They were hungry. They didn't have strength to continue fighting. And we see the incident here where Jonathan, not being aware of that, found some honey and took some honey and tried to offer it to the soldiers because, hey, hey, you know, we found honey. And look how my eyes have brightened after eating this honey. And after Saul finds out what his dad does, he says in uh, 1 Samuel 14, 29, my father has made trouble for the country. So even his own son acknowledged what is my dad doing? What kind of decisions are these? You know, what, what, what is there sobriety? Is there any logic behind these things that he's deciding? Of course not, because when you're heart-led, you're going to be led to doing things that really don't make sense for anybody else. Maybe they make sense to you, but other people are going to be like, what? Why did you do that? Why did you decide that? And so there was a big... Uh, disagreement, not just with Saul and Jonathan, his son, but with the rest of the men, because now Jonathan put himself in a position where Saul might have had to kill him because he disobeyed that vow. And so a rash vow, if you follow it all the way to the end, could lead you to do something unjust and even immoral just for the sake of that rash promise or vow that you made. Those are meant to be broken, not to be kept. So Saul was unable to keep those promises. And so not only his son recognized that he made those rash vows, 
but he kind of he kind of had to eat some humble pie in front of the rest of his commanders and his old army. So he lost a lot of faith that day before the people and before his soldiers because they kind of were they were saying, "Wow, look at this man! Is he really fit to lead the nation when he does things in this way?" Now, of course, someone who is heart led eventually they cede to conspiracies led by jealousy. They're no longer able to reasonably see things, but they read into things more than what's there and end up presuming out of fear, out of jealousy, which is what brought Saul down. Uh, he was prone to his conspiracies about David, thinking David was going to kill him, uh, then eventually blaming his son Jonathan for being in cahoots with David when Jonathan was just trying to defend him. And so all this aggravated Saul and made him have a very, very bitter spirit. Even when David had confronted him time and time again, letting him know, look, I could have killed you, but because I respect God and I fear God, and because I love you, I didn't. Why are you persecuting me? And on both occasions, King Saul admitted, yeah, you know, please forgive me, I'm doing it wrong. But he didn't repent. He confessed, but he didn't repent. He didn't change. Why? Well, that's what happens when your heart led. Saul became afraid of David. Saul believed in a lot of different conspiracies in 1 Samuel twenty-two seventeen, 17. Uh, when the priests uh, defend David and give him some bread and even give him Goliath's sword, he killed off all the priests of the Lord because they he thought they were against him because they had sided with David, what he said in 1 Samuel 22, 17. And when he commanded his soldiers to kill the priest, they didn't want to obey him. They were like, what? And only one foreigner was the guy who ended up killing all the priests of the Lord that day at Nob. So again, goes to show you that even before his commanding officers and his soldiers, he had lost all respect. But this is the life of a man who is heartless. This is the life of a man who thinks that himself and his thoughts are more important than anyone else's. And it's really pitiful. It's a sad ending to Saul's life. He could have avoided so much turmoil, so much distress, if he only had been like David, a man after God's own heart. And that's what we see in David. We see in David a man of integrity. Instead of being a heart led man, that doesn't mean he didn't have a heart. Oh, he did. He had passion, but it was for the Lord. He had a heart for the Lord, a mind for the Lord. He sought out the heart of God himself. He was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to do the Lord's bidding. And as we read all the things that David did, you will always see him seeking out the Lord's favor. He sought the Lord in everything that he did. He had the priest with him, with the ephod. That's how you know he was seeking the Lord, that Whenever you see or read that David sought the Lord out, that meant that he went to the priest, was wearing the ephod, and asked him the questions that he wanted to know so that the priest could give him the answer via the umim and the thumim, which were some dice that the priest had in his ephod. If you want to know how that works, you can talk to me later about that. But that's how one sought the Lord out that day. And David was a man whose reputation preceded him. 
If you remember when we talked about Ruth, Ruth was a person of integrity because her reputation preceded her. Everyone knew what she had done and because what she had done provided so much evidence of who she was, nobody doubted her character. That is a person of integrity. And David was very similar. We can see his resume here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. These are all the things said of him. The servant said, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem. He knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man. And the Lord is with him. Well, here's a good list for you young ladies, you know, who are seeking out a husband. You know, not, not the things about a warrior or a man of war. <laughs> you can omit that, you know, and put something else in its place. But look at this guy, you know, he was a skillful musician. You know, he was an artist, uh, but he, and he was brave. He was not a wimp. He was not a snowflake. Uh, he spoke well. He knew how to speak. Uh, and he was a fine looking man, you know, a handsome man. And the Lord was with him. What more can you want, right? <laughs> Out of a man. <laughs> that was David. Uh, that was his resume back then. And so his reputation preceded him. Everybody knew who he was and 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 were attracted to him. He was an attractive guy, not just physically speaking, but in everything that he was, particularly because the Lord was with him. And he leaned on the Lord. That's what it means that the Lord was with him. In 1 Samuel 17, uh, 37, he said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from Goliath. David was not afraid because he saw how God was with him when he was a shepherd. His God rescued him time and time again from the bear, from the lion. So he relied on the Lord when he went to stand off against Goliath. You see, bravery is not the absence of fear, but it's when you put fear in its place. Cowardice is fear unleashed. When you let fear dominate and rule you, that's when you're a coward. But if you have fear and you put it in its place because you're trusting the Lord, that is bravery. Okay? Fear is, not, is always going to be there because we're human beings. So he said in 1 Samuel 17, 45, he said to Goliath, you come with me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. So he leaned on the Lord and all these events in his life proved it, that he was not led by his fear, i.e. led by his heart. He was also a man of moral conviction. Only a man of conviction is capable of a meaningful friendship. In 1 Samuel 18.1, we read about that friendship that he had with Jonathan, Saul's son, when it says that they became one in spirit and they loved each other. Now that's talking about that deep friendship. Only somebody with conviction can be put in a place where they can have this kind of kindred spirit with someone else. Somebody who is heart-led, cannot have that kind of a meaningful relationship with other people because they'll end up being motivated by fear or by jealousy or by something else because they're too full of themselves. But someone who is morally convicted and whose trust is in the Lord is able to get close enough to other people to not let somebody else's 
prejudgment or misgivings uh, part ways with them. You know, they can overlook a lot of things because they know it's not about them, but it's about the Lord. So people with conviction can enjoy these things. A self-absorbed person can't even accept himself. How are they going to have friendship with someone else? Also, a man of conviction keeps promises. First Samuel 20, 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, not to harm the family of Jonathan. That's what the promise was about because Jonathan knew that God had chosen David and made that covenant with David so that his house would not be forgotten. And we see the answer to that in 2 Samuel when David took care of his son, Mephibosheth. A man of conviction does the right thing. Instead of letting his heart turn proud or to avenge himself or, or to take something by force, which is what we saw Saul doing in many occasions, a man of conviction is not heart-led by vengeful thoughts or jealousy or things like that. I'm not saying he doesn't have them. We do because we're people. So I may want to you know, take revenge on something. But if I'm a man of conviction... I won't do it because I know the Lord is my avenger. So I'll let him do it. I put my fear in its place. I put my heart in its place because I'm a man of conviction and I want to build a godly house. So that's what you do with a man like that. And that's what David did. Notice how in 1 Samuel 24, 6, in that first occasion, uh, when he had an opportunity to kill Saul, who was persecuting him, who was trying to kill him, you know, it would have been okay. We would have read the story. Yeah, you know what? Saul was trying to kill him. So yeah, David killed him. You know, that's what you do. If somebody's after you, trying to kill you, <laughs> how are you going to do it any other way? But David says, the Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my master. Even though Saul was intent on killing him, David still had the respect for Saul as his master and as king and did not dare put a hand against the Lord's anointed. We have seen two occasions of that. So David wins the respect of his commanding officers and of the people of Israel because these things were made known. Whereas Saul's men constantly were losing respect because they saw Saul do all these other things and they didn't respect him towards the end. But all these were building up David's respect and building up his fear of the Lord. So David ended up sparing Saul twice because he was a man of conviction. He feared the Lord. He was kept from making rash decisions, from being heartless. Instead of all these things, what did David do with all those emotions? Because, you know, they're in us still. You know, we might feel like we want to get avenged. We might feel angry. You know, we might feel frustrated. So instead of acting out on those things, the way you put them in, in, in place, David showed his hand. He poured his heart out to the Lord. He wrote the Psalms. That's what the Psalms were all about. That's where he put all that energy. That's what today we call journaling in psychotherapy circles. <laughs> so we learn from David how to even have some good therapy for our own. You know, good, good mental health day, if you will. Open up your journal and write. Write to the Lord how you feel. And you're going to end up coming back full circle and trusting God. And we see that in the Psalms over and over and over again. That's, the, that's what you do with those emotions, with your frustrations. You give them to the Lord. 
So therefore, we have the contrast here between these two kings. You can only have a balanced heart and a mind when you're devoted to the Lord. If you're not devoted to the Lord, if your eyes are on the world, you will not have balance. Mark my words. Trust God in this. You're going to end up becoming a heart-led person. There's no other choice. Only with God can you have that balance. When you follow your heart, you just get locked up in your heart and your mind suffers. So now I'm going to share with you two important principles to consider when raising a godly house. We already saw a contrast between the two characters that God sets up here for us to see. Knowing what happens when we follow our heart instead of giving our heart to the Lord. You know, two very different lives here. Two very different results. But on top of that, I'm going to repeat two principles that I already read so that we can consider them as we raise a godly house. And the first one appears in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It's in our heart study, so all of you who are uh, busy gospelers, you know this verse quite well. Do not consider appearance. Don't consider height. That's not what the Lord looks at. God does not look at outward appearances. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is what separates people of God from people of the world. We all know what people of the world look like. They're focused on how you look, how you sound, what your degree is, what your experience is. All these different outward appearances because the world cannot read the heart. They don't even know their own heart. Not that we do either. But one thing we as the people of God can do is know when to put our heart in its place. That we can do because we're giving it for the Lord, understanding that that's what God looks at. He looks at the heart. That's where integrity comes from. So what can we learn from this principle? Where are some practical applications? Well, don't be impressed by external things because God isn't. You know, God is not impressed by anyone's resume or how many things they did or, or you know, what their thoughts are or what they think they're going to be or what they're going to promise to do. God doesn't pay attention to those things. It's not our outward appearance or our surroundings that make us a man or a woman of God. But it's where our heart is looking to. Who are we giving our heart? Are we giving it to the Lord? Where is your heart at rest? Let me ask you that. Because a person whose heart is heavy and whose heart is troubled is someone that is being heartless, that is allowing their heart to be judged by outward appearances. Whereas the man of God and the woman of God, their heart, when it's troubled, it can be laid at rest. As a matter of fact, there are a few songs that talk about that. We can let our hearts find rest. Like Jesus says, let your hearts be at rest. That's only possible when we look to find rest on the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. So who is it you seek? Where does your heart turn to? Is it still seeking outward appearances? Is it still impressed by worldly things? Are you looking to be to, to let God praise you, to let praises of yourself come from God 
and not from people. That's a big difference there. Paul will say in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And your minds. Notice how the heart and mind. Notice this theme. Because where the heart goes, unfortunately, most of the time our heart ends up leading us. <laughs> and we have a hard time practicing self-control. Self-control means no, I'm going to let my convictions lead here. But most of the time, you know, where our heart goes, that's where our mind goes. So Paul says, no, set your heart on heavenly things so that your mind then can follow. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you die. Our life is not here anymore. Yes, we're going to live out the rest of, the, of this life, hopefully fulfilling whatever God wants us to do within the agency that he has given us. That's what we, that's how we're going to please the Lord. But that's it. We're travelers and our real life is hidden where Christ is. So he says in verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that's what Jesus did. He appeared here. He left the place full of light, heaven, to appear here, as Kevin said, in this dark and sinful place, but to appear here for our benefit. To appear here to help us. He came from heaven and took on our form. Living with us. Becoming like us. Even unto death. Offering that ultimate sacrifice. His own life. To call us back to be sons of the king. And upon his death on the cross. He canceled all those laws that stood opposed to us. Because they demanded perfection. A perfection that we couldn't give. All those laws that declared us insufficient, that declared us guilty because we are heart led. Because we, like God said to Moses, are a people prone to sin. And by Jesus doing this, he offered us his justification, not ours. His justification, his righteousness. So that now out of that, we can be moved out of a pure heart. To obey him. That's why all that happened. So he's calling us back to him. Back to that kind of life. That is life. That has a real future. With him in heaven. To step into that life. What do we do? We have to realize that this life. As it stands. Is worthless. And so as Jesus says. Those who lose their lives. For my sake. Will find it. But if you're intent on keeping this life here. On earth keeping it worldly, keeping it in the world, then you will lose that life Jesus has waiting for you. You're going to lose it. We want to become like him in his death. That has the real future. And so when we, had, as Jesus became a man to be able to become our salvation, now when we get baptized, we become like him in his death. So that as he was raised from the dead, when we are raised from baptism, we are raised to walk in a new way of life. A way of life now that looks forward to heaven. That can put our heart and our mind on heavenly things. That is focused on building a godly house here. And we're no longer interested now in following the ways of the world. And so in doing so, when we become born again, that's how we become born again, by being baptized 
in the name of Jesus Christ, as Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, we are given a token of holiness now. In exchange for the purging of our sins, we're given this token of holiness. God's spirit, a fresh heart, a heart of flesh like Ezekiel wrote about in his prophecy. Because sin makes your heart be as hard as stone. And that's what happens when you are heart led. Eventually your heart becomes too hard. It's not meant for all that. Our heart is meant to be devoted to God and to be refreshed and to be encouraged. But none of those things happen when you follow the world. You become more hardened, more depressed, more bitter, as we saw from the life of Saul. Now, being given a heart of flesh, if we're baptized, now we can follow God and not be tripped up by sin or by our heart because God has given us the ability to decide for ourselves what we want to do. As David's life showed us, we are people of conviction. We can be people of integrity and we can be people who know how to put our heart in its place so that it doesn't end up tripping us. But instead, we pour out our heart to the Lord and deepen our relationship with him and with each other because that's what we do with our emotions. Our emotions are made so that we can relate to each other in our sorrow, in our joy, in our frustration. None of those things are, are bad. They are part of life. It's how we use them that make us people of God as opposed to people of the world. And so Peter and Paul both agree that we need to be defined by who's inside, not what's on the outside. Peter will say, your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, hairstyles, jewelry, what you wear. No, it's that of your inner self. And this applies both to men and women, although this particular passage is written to women, but it applies to men too. The unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit which is a great worth in God's sight. Paul said that about the Jew. Who's a true Jew? One inwardly, he says, not outwardly, not what you do, but inwardly, because circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit. That's what happens when you get baptized. You allow Jesus to circumcise your heart, to get rid of that hardness of heart of the flesh, so you can have a heart that can be devoted to God. That's the real you. And that's who God wants to salvage by the Spirit. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The second spiritual principle we already read is this one given by Samuel. God delights in obedience. To obey is better than to sacrifice. To heed, that means to pay attention, to follow through. Pay attention to the details and do it God's way, not your way, is better than the fat of rams. And he says a few things here about rebellion and arrogance, which are interesting. He says rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Well, rebellion comes from a heart that wants to do what it wants to do. It wants to be independent from God, seek answers from the world. That's divination, by the way. What's the sin of divination? Trying to seek mediums and spirits instead of the spirit of God. Now, God is all knowledgeable. Even if you could talk to other spirits, they're not going to know everything. 
And they're probably intent on harming you, so they're going to give you the wrong advice anyway. But that's what happens. When you rebel, you're like someone who seeks divination. You're like, in a, like those who seek astrology, like those who are superstitious. How do you feel about superstitious people and those who seek astrology? Well, if you're rebelling, you are one and the same with them. And he says also that rebellion comes from arrogance. Arrogance is a belief that you're better and that you know better than others. An arrogant person believes they are wiser than the accumulated wisdom we find in the entire world and even in the Bible. They are the people who, without knowing all the knowledge in the world, say there is no God. Now, to say such a thing is the definition of arrogance because it implies that you know everything. But that is the epitome of arrogance. And it says here that arrogant people are like idolaters. They seek wisdom from inanimate things that other humans made who are no wiser than them. So basically, they're recycling the same ideas and thoughts that have always come from humans, and they go around in a circle like a hamster in a wheel, not progressing. Because the only way we can progress to become better people is with God's guidance and with God leading us on. So what kind of house are you building? Are you building a house that will stand the test of time? A house that will outlast you and continue on into the future, like the house God built for David, his inheritance, out of which came the Messiah? We know that the house of God will never die. The gates of Hades won't overcome. So if we seek to build our house in the kingdom on the rock, it will not be destroyed. And so I leave you with this passage in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Have a great afternoon, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.